Hey, well, welcome to Crosspoint. If you're here for the first time or you're a guest or you're a family, I am very glad that you are here today. My name is Brad, and I am uh, the lead pastor here at Crosspoint. And um, today is obviously a special day. And uh, I just want to pause for just a moment just to kind of look at your faces and see you out there. Um, it is so good to see you. And um, I love you, even if I haven't met you. And I love the pink and the purple. And... Uh, all of the pretty colors. I had a pink shirt that uh, doesn't have buttons on it, and I didn't feel a little funky about wearing a collared a shirt with a jacket without buttons. Maybe it's just me. Hopefully I can get over it. Or maybe I just need to buy a pink shirt with buttons. I don't know what the deal is. But if you have a Bible, uh, I'd invite you to open it to 1 Corinthians chapter 15. And we are going to just work our way through a very simple passage of Scripture, a very important passage of Scripture that was written by the Apostle Paul about what we're celebrating today. And if you don't have a Bible, we're going to have all the scriptures up on the screen. And uh, today is really not a day for creativity or cleverness. Today is a day for clarity and a serious joy that I pray will, will capture our hearts today as we contemplate the resurrection of Jesus Christ. Well, let's do this. Let's pray, and then we're going to work our way through this passage. Lord, thank you for today, for the event that we are celebrating and commemorating as we gather together in this schoolhouse. Lord, I am very aware of the joy, but also the gravity that comes in this moment. And I am particularly aware of the seriousness of my responsibility today, right now. And I am very aware that you draw straight lines with crooked sticks, and I am maybe one of the most crooked sticks of them all. And so I I don't appeal to any aspect of merit in my life or anything that I deserve, when I come to you and ask that you would work through my frailty and that you'd speak through me today in the hearts of these good people who I love very much. Lord, it seems like in our culture that we have somehow um, just got off course a little bit in our celebration of things like Christmas and Easter. And because of the, the seduction of modern day culture, we, we tend to focus sometimes on the wrong things. And so I, I pray today, God, that you would give us a, a simplicity, an ability to focus and to focus our hearts and our minds on the most important event in the history of the universe. And God, I pray that you would take my frail words and that you would use your Holy Spirit to use them like arrows to the hearts of both those that are already followers of you and those that are not yet followers of you. And then I pray, God, that along the way somewhere we would come up from these scriptures and come up from this contemplation in this moment with amazing joy and gratitude and thankfulness for what you have done for us in Christ Jesus on the cross. Now I pray for every distraction to be sidelined and minimized. And I pray very humbly that only because of your grace that you would speak through me and make the message of the cross and the resurrection clear. And I pray these things in the precious and strong name of Jesus, our Lord and Savior. Amen. Well, 1 Corinthians 15 is written by the Apostle Paul. And it is very likely one of the first accounts, written accounts of the resurrection. Although the Gospels, Matthew, Mark, Luke, and John, are, they precede 1 Corinthians in our Bible as we know it in the New Testament. They were likely written maybe a decade or so after 
Paul writes this letter to the Corinthians. And so what we're about to read is one of the most important passages in the New Testament on the resurrection, and maybe one of the first. And this is what the Apostle Paul writes in 1 Corinthians 15. He says, Now I would remind you, brothers, of the gospel I preached to you. What I have to tell you today is nothing new. There's no clever or creative take or angle on the news and the story that I am going to very clearly present to you today. This is, this is an old and ancient piece of news. I would remind you, brothers, of the gospel I preached to you, which you received, in which you stand, and by which you are being saved. In other words, this gospel that we are about to unpack here in just a moment is not just a one-time piece of information or a one-time piece of news that you can receive at one point in your life and then you kind of go on living your life as a a modern-day middle-class American. This gospel that we receive is something that if we are Christians, we receive and we walk in daily, that we are not just saved at some point in the past, but we then live in response to for the rest of our lives. It is not a piece of information that just secures some future destiny. It is our life. It is what we live our life in response to. It is the most important thing. It is not a point that you cross on the spectrum. It is the point where you stay and you dig deep roots in and then you grow in. It is, it is in fact, the most important news ever in the history of the world and it is current in the life of every believer by which you are being saved if you hold fast to the word I preach to you unless you believed in vain. In verse 3 he says this, For I delivered to you as of first importance. Now there are a lot of important things that you need to know today. A lot of important things to know. You need, if you're a young man, you need to know how to open a door for a woman. You, you need, <laughs> I remember the first date I went out on in high school and there was this terrible moment for me because I was at the table with this poor little girl that happened to be my guinea pig in that moment, suffering through my anxiety. I didn't know like how to pay the bill. Like, should I go up to the counter or is the waiter going to take it? And it was just, it was a terrible moment. I didn't want to look like a fool in front of this girl. Um, I, I did look like a fool in front of that girl. But there, there are some things that you need to know. You, you need to know the the pin number for your check card you you need to know your social security number there there are things that you need to know that are monumentally important i see some physicians in here you you need to know what drug to prescribe you need I, there's a guy in this room who who is who is trained to take people's hearts out of their chest and put it on a table and hook it up to something so that it can keep doing what hearts do and then go about doing. That's important. And, and if I ever have to lay on his table, I hope he knows what he's doing. Can I, can I get a north-south from you on that one? Right there, there's important stuff you got to know, man. you got to know. But the Apostle Paul says that this piece of news is of first importance. Think about that for a second, that all of the important things that there are to know in this world, and there are some very important things to know. Over and against all of that, the Apostle Paul says, this is of first importance. For I delivered to you as of first importance what I also received, that Christ died for our sins in accordance with the Scriptures. What does he mean when he says that Christ died for our sins in accordance with the Scriptures? He means that hundreds of years before, in the Old Testament, there are numerous passages that foreshadow and prophesy about the death of Christ on the cross. The, probably the one that we may be most familiar with is in Isaiah 53, and we're going to put it up on the screen, and I'm going to read it for you. This is what the prophet Isaiah says in the Old Testament about the death of Christ hundreds of years before it took place. He writes this, Who has believed what they heard from us? And to whom has the arm of the Lord been revealed? 
For he grew up before him like a young plant. He's speaking of Jesus prophetically now. Like a root out of dry ground. He had no form or majesty that we should look at him. In other words, he wasn't the cute European soccer player with his hair pulled back in a ponytail with a fake baked tan and crystal blue eyes. He was not the guy that looks like the host of a HGTV interior design show. He was a rugged Jewish Mediterranean carper guy with, carpenter guy with calluses on his hands and no particular attractiveness about him that we should notice him. He had no form or majesty that we should look at him and no beauty that we should desire him. He was despised and rejected by men, a man of sorrows and acquainted with grief. And as one from whom men hid their faces, he was despised and we esteemed him not. Surely he has borne our griefs and carried our sorrows. Yet we esteemed him stricken, smitten by God, and afflicted. But he was wounded for our transgressions. He was crushed for our iniquities. Earlier, in just a moment ago, I read from 1 Corinthians where it says that he died for our sins, and here it uses the words transgressions and iniquities. And those are words that we have sort of worked out of our language. We, we aren't familiar with those words because we're all relatively good people. We tend to think of those words as applying to the worst of the human race. But if you spent just a little bit of time in the scriptures, you realize that the witness of the scriptures is is that all of us, every person in this room is guilty of sin and rebellion and has walked away from God. That's hard for us to swallow. And it's it's actually a wildly unpopular theme in modern day America and even in some churches, but one of the most loving things and one of the most necessary things I can tell each of us here on this Easter morning is that all of us have sinned And all of us fall short of the glory of God. Each one of us has committed transgression that is not just worthy of a slap on the wrist, but it is worthy of justice and wrath from God. I realize that's offensive, but it is the first part of the message of the gospel. That's us. That's me. That's you. Verse 6. And we all like sheep have gone astray and have turned every one to his own way. And the Lord has laid on him the iniquity of us all. In other words, every act of transgression, every moment of rebellion, every lie, every lustful moment, every deviant thought, every act of commission or omission that was contrary to how God made me for his joy and for responding to him in worship as a penalty for that, the Lord laid it on Christ on the cross. Verse 7, he was oppressed and he was afflicted, yet he opened not his mouth. Like a lamb that is led to the slaughter, And like a sheep that before its shearers is silent, so he opened not his mouth. By oppression and judgment he was taken away. And as for his generation, who considered that he was cut off out of the land of the living, stricken for the transgression of my people? Verse 9, And they made his grave with the wicked and with a rich man in his death, fulfilling the prophecy that would later be told in the Gospels that a rich man, one of his followers, Joseph of Arimathea, would later come secretly and take his body and give him this grave that was his, a rich man, although he had done no violence and there was no deceit in his mouth. And then verse 10, and verse 10 is one of the most important verses in the entire Bible. Listen to this. It says, Yet... It was the will of the Lord to crush him. It was the will of the Father to crush the Son. That's a hard sentence to read. It's a hard sentence to contemplate. The death of Christ... Our rebellion, our sin, did not sneak up on God. There's another scripture in the Bible that says that Jesus was slain before the foundations 
of the world for us. And God in his justice and in his righteousness crushed his own son instead of crushing us. That is breathtaking to consider the depth and the seriousness of God's justice and love for us. Yet it was the will of the Lord to crush him. He has put him to grief. When his soul makes an offering for sin, he shall see his offspring. He shall prolong his days. The will of the Lord shall prosper in his hand. Out of the anguish of his soul, he shall see and be satisfied. By his knowledge shall, be, shall the righteous one, my servant, make many to be accounted righteous. He shall bear their iniquities. Therefore I will divide him a portion with the many, and he shall divide the spoil with the strong, because he poured out his soul to death and was numbered with the transgressors. Yet he bore the sin of many and makes intercession for the transgressors. A difficult passage to read and to think about. And it brings up the question, well, Okay, I, I understand what you're saying is, is that Jesus took on his shoulders the sin of mankind for those that would receive him and respond to him and belief and trust. But, but we can back up one question from that and say, well, why, why did Jesus have to die? I mean, if God is God, can't he just kind of give it to Ah, oh, come on, it's okay. Can't he just do that? I think it's a valid question. It's a valid question. But let me start by answering that question by just kind of relating to you how things work on this earth. Right, if, if I had a fence in my backyard and you backed your truck into my fence and ran over it, um, we would have issues. We, at some point there would be a conversation and the conversation would be, okay, how are we going to fix this? There's a transgression. There's an iniquity. There's a sin. There's a point where you have injured me. There is a fence that is lost. And at that point, I have three options. I can say, look here, Home Slice. You, you're going to pay for this fence. I mean, come on. Let's go. Right now, you're paying for this fence. Let's go to Home Depot right now, and I'm going to watch you put it back together, and I'm going to sip some lemonade, and I'm going to eat some Cheetos while you put it back together. Option number one is that you incur the cost. You're punished for your sin. Option number two could be that, oh, man, I, gosh, I, I know. <laughs> Unfortunate. Certainly you're going to help me out a little bit here. So let's together do this. I'll maybe, you know, you buy the materials and we'll repair the fence together and then we'll both sit on the porch and admire our handiwork and sip some uh, lemonade together. You're not getting any of my Cheetos, but I'll give you some lemonade. And we're, so we are sharing the cost of the offense. And the third option is, is that I say to you, it's okay. I'll pay for it. I'll rebuild it. I'll do it. But even then, and this is so important, if you tune in right now, even if I go for that third option and I say, it's okay, I'll pay for it, there still was a loss. Somebody had to absorb the cost. In that case, it was me. It, the, the offense... The injury, it didn't just poof, it didn't, it didn't, it didn't just go away. In human interaction, there is no Tinkerbell dust that we can just sprinkle on injury and offense and rebellion and sin to just make things go away. And every one of us is familiar with that. And every one of us understands that that is just the way it works in human interaction. But when it comes to our offense to God, we want to just say, I, why, why would Jesus have to die? Why would you have to pay for the offense? What, what, can't, isn't, doesn't God have some Tinkerbell dust that he can just sprinkle on it without making Jesus? Come on, let's not even talk about that. The reason, listen carefully, 
The reason why it is that way on the human level is because we are image bearers of God and that echoes the way things are in the universe. When there is an offense, it makes sense not only on the earthly level but in the heavenly level that there must be an absorption of the penalty. There must be somebody that incurs the cost. Now you could back up even one more level and you could say, well, why did God even engineer the world like that? And I, and I would say that, listen, there are some things that we just need to be willing to say. We do not have the answer to that question. We are humans. Our minds are finite. The scriptures say in 1 Corinthians 4, it says, do not go beyond what is written. In 1 Corinthians 13, it says that we see through a mirror dimly. When Job starts to question God about why he would allow certain things to happen, because isn't that the age-old question? Why would God, why would a perfect God even let transgression enter? Why? That is a valid question. And when we try and answer it too thoroughly, we get outside the bounds of, of Scripture. And so I'm here to tell you, I do not know why. He let the fence be broken in the first case. But I do know this, that it happened and he offers the debt that did not just go away. And that is where we are. We are in this world where a transgression has been committed and it's ours. And a, a payment for that transgression for some sovereign purpose that we cannot understand that he would even allow that to be the case. It is now in front of us. And we have the opportunity to either just say, oh, well, what, what? come on, I'm a pretty good guy. I'm a pretty good guy. Or to realize the depth of what even our good little American middle class lives are in comparison to what God has called us to and to respond with our lives to his offer of forgiveness. Let's keep going. First Corinthians 15. For I delivered to you as of first importance what I also received, that Christ died for our sins. He had to die. It makes sense in accordance with the scriptures. Verse 4, that he was buried, that he was raised on the third day in accordance with the scriptures, and that he appeared to Cephas. Cephas is another name for the apostle Peter. Then to the twelve, the other twelve disciples, apostles, verse 6. Then he appeared to more, listen to this, then he appeared to more than 500 brothers at one time, most of whom are still alive, though some have fallen asleep. The precision with which Paul rolls out the physical evidence for the resurrection, and, and that's what we're moving into now. Why did Christ have to die? Because we just explained that now, the resurrection, which is what I want to focus your hearts on now, is, is the most important moment that everybody in this room must consider in their lives. And Paul is not just saying it happened and it's kind of this deal now, but he is, he is going beyond the bounds of even literature to his time. And he is saying, he is setting himself up, if this is not true, to be called a liar and a fool. He's not just saying it happened and he's banking on the hearts and the, just the, 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 the willingness of people to just want it to happen. He's saying, look, there are people here, 500 at one time, men, more than that, because we only counted men back then, 500 brothers at one time, plus these 12. And then with such precision as evidence for this resurrection, he says, oh yeah, and some of those 500 have actually died. And so, you know, don't go ask that guy because he's dead. <laughs> Dead people don't meet real good defendants in a, in a court. But do you see the precision? This is, this is striking in, in literature that Paul would be that, that specific. And then he says in verse 7, Then he appeared to James, which is the half-brother of Jesus, then to all of the apostles. Last of all, as to one untimely born, he appeared also to me. What is that phrase, untimely born? It means that Paul became an apostle later in his life. Jesus came back down from heaven in Acts chapter 9, makes a personal one-on-one -on -one visit to Paul, who at that time was called Saul, and tells him to stop persecuting the church and be his apostle. And so he comes later 
For I am the least of the apostles, unworthy to be called an apostle because I persecuted the church of God. And so here's the point that I want to make, and then we're settling on this, and this is it. I want to very simply just bring everybody in this room to consider the resurrection and the reality of the resurrection. It is, if it's true, let me back up and say, and I think Christians need to have the courage to say this, if it did not happen, then we are fools. Every one of us fools. In fact, a couple verses later, in 1 Corinthians 15, verse 17, Paul says that if Christ was not raised from the dead, you are to, amongst all men the most to be pitied because you are still in your sins. In other words, the resurrection of Jesus, Christian, is not optional. It, if it did not happen, we are living a lie. But if it did happen, it means and changes everything. If Jesus came back from the dead, then it, <laughs> it sort of validates everything else that he said, does it not? I mean, if you have the power over life and death and you come back from death, at that point, if we haven't previously, previously taken you very seriously, at that point, I think it would be a good suggestion to start taking that person seriously when he comes back from the dead. And it validates everything that Jesus had to say. And Jesus said some really shocking and stunning and narrow things. In John 3, verse 3, he says that you must be born again. In John 14, verse 6, he says that of himself, I am the way and the truth and the life. No one comes to the Father except but by me. Now, I realize that's exclusive and that's harsh. But again, in light of a man who came back from the dead, he, he says these things. And he says that I am the only way. The implications of that, if you have not considered it, or if you have not received Christ as your Savior, are, are staggering and very, very serious. You may say, well, what's the evidence for the resurrection? Well, I think the first evidence is that there's an empty tomb and there's over, over 500 witnesses. And here's the deal. is Of those 500 witnesses, in the Gospel accounts, the two first people that saw Jesus were women. And... It doesn't really play well in our culture because obviously we see men and women as equal, but in, an, in a biblical time, an ancient culture, women, their testimony would not count in a court of law. And so if you're writing a story and you're wanting to start a new world religion, the last thing that you would do is in your literature is make women the first eyewitnesses of the resurrection. It would be a foolish way to fool the world. And in fact, many of the scholars believe that there was probably enormous pressure on Matthew, Mark, Luke and John to sort of, oh, come on, now can we, let's, let's, come on, let's, 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 let's change this a little bit because if we roll this out, that Mary and Mary Magdalene were the first witnesses of the resurrection and that they actually saw Jesus, then it's gonna, it's gonna invalidate everything that we see. So, if, if it's, if it's true, they're, they're leaving it in there. The fact that it was so preposterous lends credibility. To the witness. Another witness, another, another proof in some sense, and you can't prove anything, but another evidence for the resurrection is that Jesus appeared to these 500 people. We talked about that. There's physical evidence. Another one is, is that is this explosion of a new world view. Literally overnight, these timid disciples, one of whom could not even stand up to a servant girl twice around a fire. His name was Peter the night before Jesus' crucifixion. Then becomes this bold witness. He, he sees Jesus and he absolutely becomes a man on fire. And finally, all of these 12 apostles, every one of them, is later in their life, dies a martyr's death for this message. There's an old philosopher who says, I believe the witnesses who get their throats cut. 
And Peter specifically preaches this message of the resurrected Christ and later dies upside down. He's crucified upside down as he preaches this message to the Roman Empire. Paul, the person who wrote this letter, is beheaded at the end of his life, tradition tells us, by King Nero of the Roman Empire. Men trying to just propagate a message or something in their hearts that they really want to happen rarely die for that. If the resurrection happened, it changes everything. So now, in conclusion, I want to to just speak to two groups of people. If you're a Christian, if the resurrection happened, it changes everything for you. Romans chapter 8 says some amazing things in response to the resurrection. Romans 8 verse 31 says this. What then shall we say to these things? And although Paul's line of thought there in the first part of Romans 8 contains more than just the resurrection, it certainly includes that piece of knowledge, that truth. What shall we say to these things? What shall we say to the fact that Jesus has defeated death and come back from the grave? Listen to this, Christian. Listen to this. Listen to this, Christian, who has... Who, who has received Christ maybe 10 or 15 years ago and now you're struggling and now you're, you're dealing with some habitual sin that you just can't get over or now you are in the midst of a, a, a real economic crisis in your life or a marital crisis in your life or a parenting crisis in your life and, and it just seems like, God, you know, okay, I know this, I would agree with everything that Brad has said up to this point, but, but you see, now it's Sunday, April 12th and my life is a wreck. What difference does the resurrection make for me right now? And this is what Paul hits on. He says, what then shall we say to these things? Listen to these words. They are spectacularly stunning. It says, if God is for us, who can be against us? That is the most rhetorical of all rhetorical questions. That means if the creator of the universe has saved your soul, what can this feeble world do to you? (laughs) Jesus says in the Gospels, don't fear the one who can take your life. Because yes, there are forces in this world, people in this world, that can kill us. But we live with such an earthly perspective that what the Bible is telling us here is get your eyes on eternity. He says, don't fear the one that can kill your body, but fear the one who can kill your body and send your soul to hell. God, if He is for you, who can be against you? If Jesus has risen from the dead, what can this broken, weak world do to us? The answer implied rhetorically is nothing. Nothing. Psalm 46. God is our refuge and strength. A very present help in trouble. Therefore, I will not fear. Though the earth gives way. Though the mountains be moved into the heart of the sea. Though the waters roar and foam, though the mountains tremble at its swelling, there is a river whose streams make glad the city of God, the holy habitation of the Most High. God is in the midst of her. That's your life, Christian. God is in the midst of her. She shall not be moved. God will help her when morning dawns. That's the message of the resurrection for the Christian. If God is for us, who can be against us? He, verse 32 of Romans 8, He who did not spare His own Son, but gave Him up for us all, how will He not also with Him graciously give us all things? And listen, for those of you that have any time watching TB, TBN in your, in your life, I, I, first of all, I apologize for the folly of most of the witness on Christian TV, but this does not mean a Cadillac. This does not mean prosperity here on this earth. This does not mean that everything in your world will go well. 
Read Hebrews chapter 11. The hall of fame for faith that we refer to it. It says, some of these people of faith, they conquered kingdoms. They did incredible things. And they were people of faith. And we, we want to read that. We're like, yeah, yeah, that's me. Yeah, now I'm going to name it and claim it. All this stupid theology that we get from that. But then we read on and it says, oh yeah. And some of these people were sawn in half. Because of their testimony for Jesus. <laughs> Acts chapter 12 speaks about James, the brother of Jesus, who is killed with the sword. And then later in the chapter, it says that Peter is broken out of prison. If you're James in heaven, couldn't you say, hey God, couldn't maybe you have maybe kept the sword for me? Peter's getting the juice card and I'm getting the sword run through me. So how do I balance that with this scripture that says that he who did not spare his own son, but gave him up for us all, how will he not with him also graciously give us all things? we got to blow that verse up to eternity, man. It doesn't mean health and wealth necessarily here on this earth, although it may, if that be God's sovereign plan for your life. But it means that in the view of eternity, what can this world do to me? Nothing, nothing, nothing at all. Who shall bring any charge against God's elect? Christian, you're a believer in the resurrection and you're still battling with some besetting sin and it is getting ready to shipwreck you and overtake you and you think that maybe this thing is greater than the cross and you think that maybe the condemnation and the guilt is greater than the cross. Not so! Who shall bring any charge against God's elect? It is God who justifies. Who is to condemn? Christ Jesus is the one who died more than that, who was raised, who is at the right hand of God, who is interceding for us. <laughs> who shall separate us from the love of Christ? Shall tribulation or distress or persecution or famine or nakedness or danger or sword? As it is written, for your sake we are being killed all the day long. We are regarded as sheep to be slaughtered. No, no. In all these things we are more than conquerors through Him who loved us. For I am sure that neither death, nor life, nor, angel, nor angels, nor rulers, nor things present, nor things to come, nor powers, nor height, nor depth. Get a hold of the hyperbole here. In other words, anything, neither height, nor depth, nor anything else in all creation. Let me put my parentheses in there. Not even my own... Just still my own sorry life that needs to grow in God. Not even economic recession. Not, not even a sin against me. Not, not a spouse that won't do this or a child that won't do this. Nothing in all creation will be able to separate us from the love of God in Christ Jesus our Lord. That is the hope and the beauty and the power and the truth of the resurrection for the Christian. That piece of news is spectacular. And if you are a believer in the resurrection, those eight or nine verses should rise in your soul this Easter morning as a sure, a sure and glorious truth that helps you navigate through anything in this life. What if you're not yet a Christian? I want to encourage you to consider the resurrection. Remember what we said at the beginning. That said that this gospel that in you, that you hoped in, that you now believe in, that now you are being saved. Maybe it's become clear to you in the last 30 minutes or so that I don't know if I really understand Christianity like this guy's rolling it out. And maybe it's become clear by just the grace and the truth of the Holy Spirit. He's saying right now, you need to consider Jesus and the reality of the resurrection. What do I do? Well, here's what Jesus says. In Mark chapter 1 and verse 15, he says, The time is fulfilled. In other words, it's right now. The kingdom is at hand. Repent and believe in the gospel. Repent and believe. And what Jesus is saying there is he's not just saying, Oh, just give cognitive agreement that Christianity is a good way to live. He's not saying that if you live by these principles and these rules that it will help you have a better life. He's saying, understand that every human being that has ever lived from Mother Teresa to Adolf Hitler is a rebel that is worthy of death. It has broken down a fence 
And that transgression does not just go away. But of those three options, pouring the punishment and the debt for that sin out either on us, which would be option number one, or sharing it in some way. In other words, making you know, like, okay, I'm going to do a little bit, but you've got to act good as religious little boys and girls. Or option number three, which is taking the debt himself and absorbing himself. God graciously chose the third way, but that debt doesn't just go away. So the first thing you need to consider is really, really, I want to ask you a question if you're not yet a Christian. Are, are you confident in your life up to this point that you could stand before God and say, you know, these are the things that I have that I think in comparison to the rest of humanity should qualify me to be able to be right in your eyes. That's, a, that's an amazingly arrogant statement to make. And I know nobody would make that statement like in their own right mind, but if we do not live a life where we consider the consequences of our own sin and what Christ did for us and then respond to it by de facto in ignorance, that's what we're saying. And so, understand that your sin, great and small, incurs a cost that has been absorbed by Christ for you, but you, you have to do something. You must respond to that. Jesus says very clearly, and this may be you right now, repent and believe. No, listen, don't do that. Okay, gosh, just step, repent, oh, repent, okay, how do I do it? Believe. It's not, it's not step. Here's what happens. You simply believe. Right now, faith swells up in your heart. God is making you alive and you just, you, you trust, you breathe, you say, yes, I understand it. Yes, yes, I believe, I believe, I believe. And when you believe, it's more than just a cognitive piece of knowledge. It is, you're putting trust in, you're, you're, you're giving your faith and your hope and your life in response to Him. You're giving, you're giving your heart, your mind, your soul, you're giving everything to Christ and you're saying, up to this point, I have not previously understood this, but now I do and now I am believing. And when you believe, part of that definition of believing and going to Christ is turning away from self-reliance. It's kind of like this. If I was in Atlanta and I said, come visit me in Atlanta, you would at the same moment simultaneously be going to Atlanta and leaving Columbus. And so repent and believe are two edges of the same sort. Trust in God. Repent. Leave your life and believe in Christ. Realize that God is very serious in dealing with His glory and human rebellion on this earth. And now it is set before you. Believe in Christ. Trust in Him. Don't just respond one time at youth camp or at, a, at an emotional message or, or at some seminar where somebody laid out Christianity as some self-help message. No, no. Realize that Christ died for our sins and He rose again and the implications of that are all consuming for every human being that has ever lived. Believe. 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 Sometimes we do altar calls or prayers and I think those things can be helpful, but I'm not going to do those. It's kind of like when a baby comes out of the mother's womb. There are some things to do, you know, there's some steps to take to help that baby be healthy. And you take him over. I've been involved in four of those, by the way, so I've got a little experience. You watch the baby, they go over to the table, so people clean it up, stick it, prod it. They take this thing and they suck the mucus or whatever out of his mouth. Those are very helpful things. Do you know when that baby, you know when that baby like, was born? Like when he came out, he just, he breathed. She breathed. He believed. And so when we tell you to come down and raise your hand and fill out a card and say a prayer, justice, oh, get the prepositions right. Oh, repeat after me. I mean, those can be helpful, but that doesn't make you a Christian. Believe. Trust. Is there doubt? Sure, there's doubt. Believe. In the midst of a broken world and a limited mind where you can't figure out and you're wondering, what is life all about? What is this crazy guy talking about? Believe! And in that moment, you breathe. You are born again. The resurrection is true in your life. And then Romans 8 is true in your life forever. What can man do to me? If God is for us, who can be against us? Believe! Trust. Turn. Come.
come to Christ. Right now as we're speaking. I hope and pray that some of you are doing that. The Bible says, and this is what I love about salvation, it's so much more about God's strength and love than it is about your ability to do everything right or persevere. Salvation is more about God's preservation of His work in your life than it is about your religious ability. So believe. 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 The guys are going to sing a few songs. We're going to respond in song and prayer and communion for those who want to receive it. And I want you to consider the risen Christ. Pray with me. Well, Father, I thank you for the Bible. I pray that my words today have stuck close to Scripture. If there was anything out of bounds or not in line with Scripture, I pray that by your grace it would fall to the ground. But Lord, the words of truth from your Scripture that we have read and that I have expanded upon, would you so graciously put them as an arrow in your bow and would you shoot them in our hearts? I think of my own life and I know how I have been viewed in my life by everybody around me my family, my friends and society at large I have always been viewed as a relatively good guy that's relatively successful that does the right thing and culture would tell people like me and I venture to say that there's a lot of folks in here that had a similar experience culture would tell me that I'm okay But I thank you by your grace that on that day in March in 1989 when I was a high school senior that you by your grace illuminated to my heart the the wickedness of my sin and rebellion and self-reliance and how in reality I was creating a God in my own image that would sort of be there when I wanted him to and I was just going to navigate my life on my own. I thank you also that even after that point, since I've been a Christian and have at various times in my life of walking with you have fallen into just dark places of despair, self-reliance, lust, sin, arrogance, pride, that my salvation has been about something far greater than my human ability, but it's been about your glory. And I thank you that you've kept me and you've preserved me to this day. And now I know beyond a shadow of a doubt that I have nothing to boast in except for your grace and the cross of Jesus Christ. That's the way it happened for me at a moment. You just illuminated it to my mind. And I pray, God, that if there's a person in this room that has not truly been born again and has not truly responded to the resurrection, I pray that they would Believe, simply believe, believe. And that in their believing, they would do more than just agree with cognitively, but they would take in that breath, just as a newborn babe does when he or she is born, and breathe faith into their lungs. And fill their body, their little body, with the oxygen that only you can supply. God, I pray that that if there's anybody in here that needs to become a Christian, that they would simply do that. They would, they would maybe for the first time in their life, I don't care if they've grown up in church all their life, that maybe today for the first time they would inhale and breathe true belief. Because when we truly believe, that belief becomes our oxygen. We can't do without it. We we have, we're reliant on it. It's not just one breath that we take and then we grow into adulthood. No, we, 
we have to breathe every second of our life your grace and your truth and your mercy and and you've given us brothers and sisters to breathe with and so God if there's somebody in here who is when they walked into this room they never truly breathed God right now would you open up their lungs would you let them breathe life would you let them stop sucking on the fumes of carbon dioxide of this broken culture and self-reliance and would you bring the dead to life and would you let them breathe God for the Christian God would you would you help us if there's been things suffocating our ability to breathe if there's been hands around our neck if through our own sin or through our own folly we've sort of put ourselves in a closed space that the oxygen is short supply God would you would you help us consider the risen Christ and the implications of that and would you put us in a wide open space that doesn't make some of the circumstances we're in go away but would you let us once again breathe breathe in Belief and trust and response and alignment with the glorious news of the resurrected Jesus Christ. And would it produce in us unbelievable, humble confidence that what shall separate us from your love, nothing in all this world. I pray that in Jesus' name. Amen. Well, his response to this, communion is available if you want to receive communion. The guys are going to play a couple songs that we're going to respond to in song. In just a moment, I'll invite you to stand. You're welcome to stand and sing and lift your arms and praise. You're welcome to stay in your seat with your face in your hands and just doing business with God. If you need prayer for anything, we'll be down here. Come, come get one of us and we'll pray with you. If you want to pray alone, we don't want to bother you. But if you need prayer, come get with one of us. If you're a person in here who falls into that first category that I spoke of and you said, you know, I think I'm believing, I'm really believing for the first time. And there's nothing I can do that will make that actually stick. But if you want to just talk to somebody and say, hey, just just give me some thoughts about what I should do now. I'd, I'd love to take you over to the cleanup table a little bit and wipe you down and say, hey, this is what it looks like. I'd love to do that. But realize that coming forward, raising your hand, none of that makes you a Christian. Believe. Take an air. Turn. Trust. Be saved. Well, let's all stand. Lord, I pray now that we respond to you in these next few moments in worship and simplicity and sincerity. Let's sing together. <laughs>